We're in the latter part of chapter 14 today, but in the beginning part of chapter 14, the first five verses, in this particular vision, sometimes John has visions that are projected down on earth. In this particular vision, it's projected up into heaven, and so he's seeing what's happening in the heavens. In the first five verses, he sees in his vision the Lamb of God, and he sees that he's, he's seated in Mount Zion, and he's in the midst of the 144,000. Of course, the Lamb of God is Jesus. And Mount Zion, that in those verses, symbolizes the presence of God. So it's Jesus and the presence of God. And the 144,000 symbolize all the saints of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so John is treated to this heavenly vision of the saints in the presence of the Lamb. And they are the saints, the 144, because the Lamb has redeemed them and He has marked them as His. God is such a personal God. He marks His. He keeps track of all of us and all our comings and goings. Now in this scene in the first five verses, the saints, uh, as usual in heaven, they're exuberant. And they are singing a new song. And in the Old Testament, people would break out in new songs, praise songs and worship songs when God did something what we would, might call today epic, but really something very memorable in redemptive history. When He did something amazing, it was not unusual for them to break out in song. Let's put a tune to this. Let's sing this. Let's encapsulate this great event that the Lord has done and sing it and breathe it in. And so we can, we, we can remember it and and give it back to Him in, as a form of praise. And so we have in heaven these instruments, and we have, I'm assuming instruments, it was a song anyway, um, and we have tremendous singing. And it's interesting that how important something as simple as singing, how important that is to God. And that He has given us the gift of music. He's given us the gift of instruments. He's given us voices to sing His praise. And we don't want to take for granted the, the, the privileges that we have to sing our praises to God every Sunday. As I was reading this chapter and thinking about just the great mass of redeemed humanity in heaven, lifting their voices, singing a new song to God, and the effect that will have to, uh, on us. It brought to mind uh, an event that I attended. It was, uh, I think it was estimated about a half a million men went to D.C. for a Promise Keepers event in uh, 1997. Yes, I'm that old. So 1997. Did anybody happen to go to that Promise Keepers event in 97? There's about four or five of us. So the thing, it was a great, it was a wonderful time, but there was something happened that I'm not, that I wasn't used to, and that is, it was, it was all men, and we sang praise songs. And so basically what you had mostly was this bass, because men sing a little differently, sound a little differently than women do. You get a different effect. And so we have a, approximately a half a million men singing and, and lifting their voice to God with all this bass, and maybe it was just me, maybe it was in my mind, but I am pretty sure, you know, bass is bi-directional. And I'm pretty sure the ground was shaking a little bit. 
And if it wasn't the ground, I know that I think the bass was shaking off my body in some kind of way because there was just this vibration. It was a vibrant and exuberant worship of the Lord with the mass of men whose hearts have been transformed by the living God. So that's just like an example, a microcosm of what will happen in the heavens when we join our voices together, people from every tongue, every nation, singing their heart out to the Savior. And John is treated to these visions. And we get a little glimpse of these things in the book of Revelation. And it helps us to look forward to these events. And I am grateful for the worship times. And I'm grateful for our worship team here that leads us in that worship and singing these songs is used by God to prepare us for what is and for what will come. So in today's text, John continues to see things. And first, I'll break it into two parts. He sees angels, and then in another vision, and they're all kind of built on top of each other. They just keep coming. He sees the Son of Man. Now, I want to say up front that this is a section of Revelation that is um, heart-rendering. It's vivid. It talks about the, the wrath of God in form of um, what we might call the grapes of God's wrath. And so I just want to uh, warn us in that. It's a sobering vision, but a helpful and needed vision. This time, rather than reading the whole text, and I'm going to begin in verse 6, and we will finish chapter 14 today. I'm just going to read it um, in increments, according to the points that I have here. So first, the three angelic announcements. Let's look at chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So this comes, this announcement comes from an angel and it is directed to the earth dwellers. And we know by now that this term as in, in Revelation, it's used to mean those that uh, dwell on earth in the sense that they have by their own volition chosen to uh, love the world more than God. They're earth dwellers. They're the ones that say, no, I'm just fine here. No thank you to the divine. I have what I need here. I will get my satisfaction from this world. So they love the world more than they love the God of heaven. They are the earth dwellers, and that's what this message is directed to. The message sounds pretty straightforward when you first read it, but it's catchy. Here, these verses are catchy, and they can be misleading. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time, because they have been used, I think, in a misleading way, to hopefully bring some clarity here. So the angels proclaiming the eternal gospel. Now, the problem with this is that when you read what the angel says, that's not the gospel that you're used to hearing. And that's not the gospel that we preach in this church. Because what the angel actually says is, For God, fear God and worship Him who made heaven and earth and sea and fresh water. Now, that's true and that's good. That's part of what God demands from us. But that is not 
a definition of the eternal gospel. And there's good reason that this needs to be defined. Because what we understand the gospel of is in the New Testament, it is placing your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and then you can be saved from the wrath of God. Here's where, well, let me just describe what's the, what the problem is, and if it doesn't, if that's not a definition of the eternal gospel, then what does he mean here? How do we remedy this? Well, though it seems like an innocent and wholesome thing and helpful thing to say, the problem is that if we adopt this as the, and I'll tell you the remedy in a second, but if we adopt this as the eternal gospel, we get ourselves in trouble. And what it winds up turning into is what, um, what we might call uh, the inclusivistic or inclusive gospel. If you take these words at face value, fear God. Fear God and, and worship the Creator. When you speak those words to fallen humanity, what do you get? Well, you get false religion. Because there are people that are fearing God and they are worshiping their creator. But it's not the right one. It's a false God. It's a false creator. So this this word um, left to fallen humanity without special revelation leaves us in a predicament. And basically, if we take this as eternal gospel, if we say all you have to do is fear God and worship the Creator, well, who is God? If, if I say that to an individual or a people group, who do they identify as, as God? Will they be saved if they worship the God that they know? You see, it's, it's problematic for fallen humanity because we have devised many gods. And they're not always the true God. We were reminded this morning in Sunday school that our tendency, our proclivity in fall, as fallen humans is actually to not worship the, the true God. It's to worship the substitute gods that we devise, that we think serve us in our sinfulness. So we come up with our own versions, and it's false religion. We have pantheism. If you say, to some worship God, well, God is everything. God is everywhere. Or for some it might be, yes, I worship Allah. And that if this is the eternal gospel, then the gospel is nothing but an appeal to man's conscience to just reach out to whatever he thinks is God and worship it and he shall be saved. That is not the eternal gospel. The eternal gospel, so what is the eternal gospel and what what is meant in this passage? Well, what the angel is announcing is as a result of the gospel. The gospel in verse 6 is presupposed. So when, even when the churches that John sent this message to, the early churches would understand what the gospel truly was. Because it had already been defined as belief in the specific person of Jesus Christ, God's Son, God's gift to the world. The Christianity is inclusive in the sense that the gospel message goes out to all. But it is exclusive in the sense that the only way to get to the Father is through Jesus Christ. And there is only one true God. We need the special generation, uh, 
revelation, not just general revelation. We can't be left to our own minds to figure things out. We need God's special revelation to tell us who the right God is, how to worship that right God, and how He has provided salvation for us through Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. If you had, not know, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do not know him and have From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. So Jesus is the God that we are to worship. Not just any God out there. So what does this mean if that's not the eternal gospel? So the idea here, what the angel is doing and what has taken place is because the eternal gospel of believing in Jesus Christ, God's Son, has gone out and it is understood, therefore, this is a warning. Therefore, fear God. And worship the Creator. It's tied back to Jesus Christ. The Gospel's gone out. The message, the grace, the olive leaf to fallen humanity has gone out. And it needs to be heeded. Because God is a God of judgment. Angel number 2 in verse 8. Another angel, a second followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So these verses are actually going to, are describing uh, what we will go into greater detail in chapter 17 and 18. Where Babylon has fallen. But for now I will say that Babylon, of course you know Babylon was a literal kingdom. A literal powerful empire in history in the days of the Old Testament. It was an evil empire. And God used it. But God judged it for its pride and God judged it for, for its arrogancy. And so in Revelation, and really in Scripture, but in Revelation in particular, Babylon becomes symbolic of all the evil around the globe. It's just the, the cumulative, all the evil empires put together, all of evil humanity. And the sexual immorality... Uh, though it can be literal, of course, is usually symbolic in the sense that we have committed spiritual adultery by worshiping false idols. And these things are an abomination to the Lord. So just as literal Babylon was judged and fell, so the spiritual Babylon will also, of, of, of the earthly kingdoms will also be judged and fall. Power is intoxicating. Uh, sin can be intoxicating in it, and you know, we, we get drunk by it as we, we drink it in. But just as that kingdom literally was judged, so the spiritual kingdom of Babylon and all that it represents will also be judged. Then Angel 3 makes an announcement in verses 9 through 11. And another angel. A third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. Now that's so interesting because the chapter before, in chapter 13, you might recall that it was the beast that said, if you don't worship me, you will pay the price. The beast was saying, you will suffer. You will be persecuted. You will pay the price. If you do not, if you do not bear my mark, you won't be able to buy and sell and so forth. Here, the tables are turned. And you have the lamb saying, those that do not bear my mark will suffer my wrath. This is the most vivid and horrendous judgment I think that we've really uh, read yet. And we have read some gruesome things regarding judgment so far. And here we come to the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath in Scripture is often defined as, as being in, in a cup. It's like this, it's, it's a concentrated thing that people will drink. The cup of God's wrath. It's a prominent theme, Jeremiah chapter 2. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among you. And so this particular form of wrath came in God giving uh, giving swords to crazed people and of course the first thing they do is wreak violence with them it makes me think you know a lot of the wars that we have had is because of people who weren't thinking right there's very few wars that we've had that have been well thought out said yeah we we have justified this battle a lot of times it's just crazed people wanting to take over wanting power wanting control a lot of times it might just be vengeance So God sent that form of judgment by putting into the hands of crazed people a sword. Jeremiah continues, Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. The Lord will roar from on high and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Verse two in Jeremiah, uh, verse thirty-two in Jeremiah, twenty-seven. Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the world. So we see in the Old Testament this theme of the cup of God's wrath. In it is the fury of God and it just builds and builds and builds. And then, of course, Revelation here takes it even a notch higher because now it's not just man against man. It is literally the wrath of God. And in this cup of wrath, it's, it's not cut. It's not diluted. See, even the, the wrath and, and the judgment of God that we have faced so far and will continue to face before the final judgment in a sense, are cut. They're diluted. It's not the full weight of the hand of God. That is reserved for the very end. And so in the very end, that undiluted wrath and fury 
of hell itself will be poured out. Of course, the idea of sulfur uh, comes from Sodom and Gomorrah. Symbolism of terrifying times. Symbolic of things that you just can't get out of. You can't escape no matter who you think you are. And these kind of visions leave no mistake in understanding how God thinks about sin and evil. It's so heinous to Him and and we're, we're so immersed in it and we get used to it. And it doesn't bother us like it should, but God never gets used to it. It just builds and builds and builds and builds into this cup of fury. In verse 11, the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name, there's no rest here in this description. Can you imagine? You come. Uh, how many times have I heard some of us say, I'm just so tired, I'm so worn out. I don't know how I can take another day. Can you imagine what that symbolizes for hell? No Sabbath, no rest, no break, no breather, no snack break, nothing. It is this constant weight that is pressed upon and felt and experienced of the judgment of personal sin on the individuals. Whereas the believer is given pictures of heaven of you just have these still waters. You have nothing but peace. There's no turmoil. There's no chaos. There's no fear. There's absolutely nothing to dread from one moment to the next in heaven. So you see the contrast that builds and builds and builds in the history of the world and comes to an end in in the, in the end times, when what we think of as terrible becomes really ter- terrible, and the glimpses of good, the glimpses of good and blessings that we see become tremendously good, and we will be tremendously blessed. And of course, as believers, and we're reminded of this on our Monday Thursday services, it's hard to talk about the cup of wrath without talking about Jesus, because Jesus understood that fury. He, he didn't take it lightly. He understood it would, what it would mean because when He was in the garden of all things, Jesus the Son of God prays, if there's any way possible, any way possible, may I be delivered from this cup. And there was no way. And He obeyed the Father. And that obedience to the Father meant that He took the wrath of God upon Him. And I can't imagine, we can, we can only imagine, but I don't know the full depths of this, but he drank the cup of the wrath of God. And as R.C. Sproul would say, he drank it down to the dregs. He drank every single drop of the fury of the wrath of God. It fell upon him and on the cross, he was forsaken. God turned his face from his son. Why? For us. Because God is a loving God. He's a merciful God. He goes to that extent to mark those as His own so that we can spend eternity in a community blessed by the blood of Christ. A community that will pour their hearts out in praise and new song I'd venture to say forever and ever.
verses 12 and 13, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So in the midst of this terrifying judgment against those that have the mark of the beast, you have just these words, a few verses of of consolation to the saints. It's It's a call, hang on. Life can be tough. Your walk with Christ can be tough. But hang on, saints. Justice will be done. I'm working on it as we speak. It will come to pass. Everything will be put right. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So be encouraged. Unlike the wicked that will find no rest, we will enjoy rest. When we die, we are immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord. And our troubles and our hardships and our tribulations are over. That's it. So take heart, in essence, children of God. Because unlike the chaos of evil, our sense of well-being and blessedness will only heighten, and I would venture to say in heaven, somehow amazingly only get better and better every day. So we see that first vision and the announcements of the angels. And I'll close with the second thing that John sees, and that is he sees the Son of Man. And of course the Son of Man is up to something. He's doing something. Verse 14, first we see this harvest. This is a harvest. um, These are harvest verses. We have harvest of grain. We have harvest of grapes. So harvest of grain in verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. You know, if you've done any kind of growing or gardening, the whole idea of the harvest is it's all about timing. You put the work in up front, And then you just have to wait. You have to nurture. You have to care. It's all about the timing. If you harvest, try to harvest something too soon, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be sweet like it's supposed to be. If you wait too long, you blew it. It doesn't have the taste it's supposed to have. Now it's rotten. There's this window. There's this moment. It's about the time. And there will be a time, according to God's economy, And His sovereign wisdom, when He knows the earth is right, all this has gone on, all the rebellion since the Garden of Eden has gone on, and there's going to be a time, just the right time, for Him to come down with a sickle and harvest the grain. This reminds me, of course, of Jesus' teaching of the wheat and the tares. When the disciples, when He tells that parable, and and should we harvest, should we get the tares out of the wheat? And the Lord says, no, they're going to grow together. Until the harvest. Then we'll separate them. And that's what we see. 
we see there's evil and goodness in this world that will grow together until the harvest comes. And then lastly, we see the harvest of the grapes in 17 through 20. Then another angel came out and the temple of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. And the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So, I think the, the harvest of the grain uh, likely represented the harvest of God's people harvested into heaven. The time is ripe for us to go. For that to our struggles to end. So the grapes of wrath or the harvest of the wrath represents the wickedness. And we have just a horrendous picture when you think about these agrarian metaphors that John is using in his vision. Uh, you have the sickle where the grain is cut, but then you have the grapes where they are picked from the vine and they are put into a vat. And the bigger the, the, bigger the uh, vineyard, the bigger the vat. And you gather all of these grapes and you put them into this tremendous stone-like vat in that day. And this vat had little holes around it. You put the grapes in it and then you had the workers. And what did the workers do? They just stomped. And they walked and they crushed in the weight of their body and their feet and their work. And they put all of their strength into it. That's the day's work. And you stomp and you crush and you stomp and you crush until the juice finally is, comes out and it begins to seep out these little holes. And you get the juice. And this is applied. Now that's not so gruesome when you think about grapes. As a matter of fact, there's nothing better than fresh grape juice. But then when you apply this to uh, as a picture of God's wrath against those that have refused to believe in the gift of His Son. This is, this is horrendous. Because then you realize, I mean, if you let your imagination go, you realize that those are people that are being stomped on. And they're feeling the whole weight and the whole strength of the wrath and the fury of God until they're pressed and pressed and pressed. And what comes out here is blood through the little holes. And you got the 16 stadia. Um, in, in other words, it's a lot. It's a tremendous amount of wrath and judgment that has taken place. It, the idea is that it's, it covers every square inch. That nothing will escape. And all of this, ironically, takes place outside the city. Isn't that ironic? Outside the city. Where was Christ crucified? But outside, all of this takes place outside the city. And the people outside of the city are receiving the full judgment of the curse of their sin. And that's a lot to take in. But I, for one, am very grateful for books like this and visions like this because I need this in my life. I need 
God's perspective, what He thinks about heaven and what He thinks about hell. And it draws our mind to think and to worship God for who He really is. I want to close with a quote here from D.A. Carson. What is at stake here is the sheer violent thoroughness of God's wrath. You can't hide from it at the end. This vision establishes for us what is of the utmost importance and therefore forbids us from displacing the central by the relatively peripheral, as if the gospel is first and foremost designed to make us feel better. It's first and foremost designed to enable us to flee the wrath to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the preaching of His Word.